G'day and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Today we're going to continue the series exploring the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Scheme. If you are just new to the Australian Histories podcast, you might like to start this Snowy Hydro story back at the first episode in this series. That's episode 38, before making your way back to here. Last episode we looked at how the Authority gathered the data to design and plan the construction and how they recruited a workforce at a time when labour was scarce. Again today I'll often be quoting from stories that Siobhan McHugh gathered and recorded in her Butte book, The Snowy, A History. As always, details about that book and the other references used can be found at the episode reference list posted on the australianhistoriespodcast.com.au website. Don't forget that histories is spelt with an I-E-S. Also, I've a small addendum to the last episode. I mentioned then that the author Miles Franklin's family had been living at Talbingo Station when she was born and that I had a vague memory I'd heard it was threatened or lost in the recent 2020 fires. In fact, having another look at that, I believe that the Talbingo homestead was lost when the valley was flooded for the snowy in 1968 and it now lies under the Jaunama Pond. Maybe in recalling such a reference to the fire threat, perhaps the news I'd heard about was in relation to the Brindabella station, where her extended family had settled, and where she and her family later lived too. Anyway, it's possible Brindabella may have been threatened in the 2020 fires, as it had been in 2003, but it does seem to have survived. So there's that link to the author, still with us anyway. Okay, so that's quite enough time spent on a tenuous snowy story linked to a literary celebrity. Let's move on. However, after recommending Phil's World War I Diggers History podcast last month, Phil got in touch to tell me that his grandmother's family had lived around Old Jindabyne. He sent me an image of the old road, now heading off straight into the water. So there's an interesting little link too. It's a smaller world than we imagine sometimes, isn't it? Okay, on with the show, and back to the snowy. I up to Murray One, around Cancoban and the work I've done, I'll think... Of all the mighty change I've seen on the great dividing range High up to Watson's Crag Low around in the violent tracks Back to happy jags This lonely travelling mind of mine Lonely travelling time unravelling Lonely travelling mind of mine So, as we left the last episode, about 5,500 square miles were under survey and about half of that area mapped. Work was nominated to begin around Gathiga and that first project tender would be won by the Norwegian firm, Ingenor F. Selma. But before we hear about the Norwegians, let's talk a bit about the conditions and the people that got the project shovel-ready, as they say. We mentioned the legendary Major in the last episode, but all those who undertook the early survey work were regularly challenged by the environment. The surveyors, the exploratory drillers and the hydrographers were the vanguard of the project, as the data they gathered solidified the construction plans. They were crucial to moving the whole project forward, and so they worked long days in all weather, living in the most primitive of camps under very challenging conditions. There were numerous stories of survey teams being caught out in bad weather, sometimes having to hold up in makeshift shelters, and in the early days sometimes their whereabouts were a complete mystery. So there was potential for tragedy in some of those uncharted and inaccessible areas. The authorities soon realised the men had to log their planned movements, so that at least there was some hope of locating them, should it all go pear-shaped. And later, radios helped when reception was available. 
Many camps were accessible only on foot, sometimes kilometres from the closest vehicle track, with pack horses bringing in supplies a couple of times a week. McHugh was told cooks were apparently hard to find at that time too, so their rations and meals were rather primitive, consisting of, quote, corned beef, boiled cabbage, tins, tins and tins, unquote. <laughs> but some camps did get lucky, receiving rump steak in their supplies, which one bloke reminisced was cooked over an open fire on a long-handled shovel. <laughs> The Aussies loved their camp-baked damper too, but one effort came out baked so hard they couldn't eat it. The men were so impressed by its solidity they nailed it to a tree, and they were amused when even the crows refused to eat it. Before construction plans were confirmed, the authority wanted the least amount of disturbance created while investigating, so where vehicle tracks were required, only the narrowest of paths would be cut. If the area was to later be used for construction, they would expand them then. McHugh recorded that the first Land Rovers arrived in Australia in 1949, so they were just in time for the authority to purchase seven and have their metal tested in the Australian alpine conditions. Some areas were still too inaccessible or steep for vehicles though, as I mentioned earlier pack horse teams and other exciting modes of transport like the Major's dinghy and rope ferry across the rivers were still in use, and I think in many cases the horse might have been the more sound option in such terrain. The Land Rovers were not always comfortable or reliable. McHugh retells one driver's story, quote, The Land Rover stopped dead when he was fording the creek. It was two degrees outside, but he had to jump out and start fixing the vehicle. When he got back in, he took off his wet gumboots and drove to Adaminibi in bare feet. By the time he arrived there, his foot was frozen to the steel pedal. I drove to Bailey's garage and he warmed up the kettle and poured it over me foot. If I'd just pulled it off, it would have taken a skin with it. That's how cold it used to get. Unquote. The hydrographers, who had to work in the snow to collect data on snow depth and expected water flow, were most useful if they could ski. In Australia, most skiers then were recreational downhill skiers, so it was not a large pool to call on. So again, those employed for the task were often from snowy areas in Europe, where skiing was more common. The early data gathered was highly valuable, indicating that the scheme might harvest even more generating and irrigating capacity than first anticipated, which was a very helpful and rewarding outcome for those who had championed the scheme. And it was this information which led to the slight change in plans, increasing the size of the Yukonbin Reservoir and allowing it to link and control the two parts of the scheme, north and south. In changing the tunnel and dam setup, and slightly moving the dam structures a few kilometres downstream of the original plan, the reservoir could store more water and allow water to be pumped back up above the power stations at times of low power use, allowing it to be released again at peak times. Now that's pumped storage. That's a topical term for Australians as I write this. Most of us will have heard of Snowy 2.0, so we might touch on that again in the series wrap. Basically, pump storage just means the same volume of water can be used over again to generate new power after it's been pumped back up for another go. The generators would get repeated bang from the same stored water buck, making it even more economical to run and thus the scheme potentially even more successful. Other savings came from the on-ground investigations too. One worker reported drilling in an area with pretty poor foundation prospects for one of the planned structures but in one spot he thought the drill had hit something a bit harder. He began to test the wider area a bit more, despite the lack of enthusiasm by the geologist on site. And nearby he did in fact find a base of granite. Quote, 
after drilling about 18 inches, that's 46 centimetres, we were into fresh granite. You can tell, the machine slows down, the engine has a different sound, different colour of water coming back up. They had everything designed, nearly the contract let, to build the power station on that rubbish. But by getting that core there, they shifted the whole station about 200 metres, unquote. And no doubt this move saved them a ton of money in concrete and other engineered solutions required for the soft soil. The man was a regular hero for taking that punt, but he didn't get much thanks, suspecting that any praise probably went to the blasé geologist instead. He thought that the geologists were, quote, smart people, but arrogant. <laughs> the men involved in this early work were proud of their contributions and the resulting increased outcome. They felt the deprivations that they had suffered in the field directly contributed to an improved outcome for their fellow Australians. And so they did. The information they gathered certainly contributed to the success of the project and to the goodwill element too. To map and measure the mountains and valleys in a time before satellites were available took a great deal of work. Contour maps were developed from aerial survey photographs and enhanced with on-ground data collection. This was all pre-computer, pre-mobile phone or pretty much any other handheld electronic device. They had pencils, a theodolite and an altimeter and they needed to trudge into steep virgin bush in all kinds of weather to take their readings. They would set up a base camp in the area to be investigated, then with an aerial photo in hand they would travel to a chosen survey point, which would then be verified and marked on the photo, along with the date and time. The altimeter readings were recorded on the back, along with temperature and any other observations of note. These photographs were returned to the drafting office for processing, and each surveyed point data set would be recorded on the large detailed contour maps being manually drawn up for that huge area across the Alps. And so, with the survey and hydrological data proving the potential, the engineers modified the plans to accommodate the improved design. And doing so at Eukenbean meant the actual generating plants required there could be reduced from 16 to 7, while their output would actually increase from 2.62 million to 3.75 million kilowatts. Now, I'm not really appreciating what a kilowatt is. I don't understand exactly how impressive that result is. You know, like lighting up X amount of Olympic swimming pools, for example. But I understand what it means in a practical sense. It would allow an increase in energy output even while reducing the construction needs of the generating buildings and plant. It was a fantastic windfall for the scheme. It would require a couple more dams to manage the water, Further impact on the environment, perhaps, though I don't know how it compared to the disruption required for the original plan, so it's hard to say if it had been better or worse. But with less plant and building construction, there must have been savings overall, and certainly it meant a much better result in outcome for the Australian people. The authority must have been delighted. I guess there was always the possibility those hydrography numbers could have come back indicating less water availability. So, phew! <laughs> So the redesigned Eukenbean Reservoir and Dams would instead have a 4,798 million cubic metre capacity, according to Geoscience Australia. Once again, I don't have the quintessential Olympic swimming pool measurement for you, but I can say that it means it would eventually hold more than nine times the amount of water contained in Sydney Harbour, according to Wiki. So that's really a lot of water. 
Okay, it doesn't make it into the top 10 dams in the world now, or even the top 20. Indeed, it was surpassed by the Gordon Dam in Tasmania in 1974, just as the Snowy Project was coming to a close. The Gordon River Dam, built by Hydro Tasmania, and I spoke about Tassie and their Uber Hydro building in the last episode, has a 12,450 million cubic metre capacity, so that's substantially more than double the Yukonbin Reservoir. Maybe 20 times the Sydney Harbour capacity. <laughs> Still, Yukonbin Reservoir was remarkable for its day, and it would control and manage the movement of water through the snowy complex. I cannot wait to get back to that snowy region and explore that area again one day, now that I've been looking at all this info. With the surveying and drill sampling well underway, work started on an access road to Number 1 Dam site at Jindabyne in April of 1950. Initially with pick and shovel, getting the incoming workers busy while they rounded up the required plant and equipment. By October they had nearly 1,100 labourers on the job. About 300 were put to building the labourers camp in Cooma, and a similar number sent to build the camp at Jindabyne, and they would make a start on the excavations for the dam. Others set up across the Snowy Project sites, at Adaminibi, around Kyandra, and so it was action stations on a number of fronts. By mid-1951, they were ready to start the first stage around Gathiga and Jindabyne. Though they were still short of vehicles and other plant, the main roads into the camps were built, the generators in place for construction sites, and workshops ready to go. But there was a cloud on the snowy horizon. Despite the optimism, and the two years already invested, in July of 1951, there was some unexpected rumbling in the Conservative government ranks about the project continuing. Senator Spooner announced that he would personally go and see the scheme to, quote, equip myself to consider some important recommendations which have been made to me, unquote. Now, in an echo of the kind of manipulation we still see happening today, Lemon told McHugh that the recommendation spoken of would have come from the powerful newspaper magnate of the period, Frank Packer. Packer was not keen on the project, and Hudson had been informed by an acquaintance that he intended to wage a campaign in the Daily Telegraph to try and starve the authority of further funding. Hudson contacted Lemon about his fears, quote, One day he sent a car round and asked me to come and see him. He told me he'd heard Packer had sworn he'd close the snowy down because he reckoned it was a sink for public money and he sent a journalist from the Telegraph round to write bad stories about it. Bill was real upset because he said there was a feeling amongst the top fellows on the Snowy that it was going to crash, and some were looking around for another job. What do I do, he says, unquote. Lemon told Hudson he'd be wise to get on the front foot, get his own report to Spooner first. He suggested that he request an interview and let him know that the negative rumours are already damaging morale on the project, despite the early successes. He should reassure Spooner that the money was not being wasted, that he was going a little over the estimated budget, but this would not blow out the costs overall. Most importantly, Lemon knew that Menzies was actually now a fan of the project, as this would be a boon to his Victorian constituents, so he advised Hudson to suggest that Spooner ought to consult with the Prime Minister directly too. Lemon also thought that the Murrumbidgee farmers, who were all very keen for the expected irrigation water from the scheme, would make a strong and supportive lobby group. He advised Hudson, quote, Tell them it was going to crash if they didn't get stuck into their local members and get them to ask questions in Parliament, unquote. 
the Murray Valley Development League and the Murrumbidgee Water Users Association joined forces and began lobbying and voicing support, reminding the Parliament of the great need for that water. Around this time, Hudson also ramped up the authorities' direct public relations outputs, creating news releases, and fortunately in those days there were more newspaper publishers than just Packer. They provided photographs and story leads directly from the authority, and they even opened up the snowy sites for public visits, so that people could view the impressive works in progress up close. When the public saw the ambitious project and the energetic activity for themselves, they really got on board, and there was more buzz than ever about the mighty snowy scheme. They were able to counter the negativity of the Daily Telegraph, and Menzies did back the snowy, encouraging Spooner to settle down. Spooner did his tour, and he confirmed publicly that the workmen on the scheme were, quote, good Australians doing a good job for Australia, unquote. <laughs> so never let it be said that our politicians don't rise to a masterful speech when necessary. But many of the ministers continued to resent Hudson and his semi-autonomous snowy authority. Only the budget fell under their purview, so it was always a potential target. All of the rest was under control of Hudson and the authority alone, and that lack of ability to stick their noses in must have rankled the more egotistical amongst them. There was also the ongoing niggle from time to time between the states, which were still arguing about the constitutionality of the scheme, and this continued until the formal resolution was finally signed off in 1959. Actually, Gray's 1956 report on the scheme also mentioned that there was a little push going on in some quarters to build nuclear power plants instead. But on review, the snowy scheme was still deemed much better value. And of course, for responsive power generation, to be switched on and off according to load requirements, the hydro option was much more appropriate and responsive than even the thermal coal-fired plants, which would always have some lag in bringing additional generators online. And with the substantial water reserves and pumping capacity, additional generators could be installed at a number of sites in the future, if desired, for comparatively little cost. So Hudson was keener than ever to start the large-scale construction and get some power to the people. Quote, large contracts worth tens of millions were advertised and enterprising firms at home and abroad formed consortiums large enough to tackle the work. Unquote. And first in were the Norwegians. Ingenor F. Selma had won the tender to design and build the first integrated project at Gathiga. Because of the shortages still being experienced in Australia, they were required to bring with them their own construction equipment, any materials that were difficult to source here, and 90% of the workforce required to do the job. They even brought their own cooks. With a dam, a tunnel, a power station and pipeline required, this first project would provide a great opportunity as a small section of the whole scheme to test each element, with the construction managed by a firm very familiar with hydro construction in their home country. The Gathiga project was about to take off. This arrangement was actually very attractive to the Norwegians too, to be able to employ a good number of their own citizens in a large-scale engineering project, as they were beginning to experience rising unemployment at home. Hudson had ensured the job would be done at a good price, and with the continuing Australian labour shortages, there would be no negative impact for the other post-war projects underway around the country. And the Norwegians, as I said before, were well-versed in hydro projects. 
Even today they are leaders, the country getting 95% of its power requirements from hydro, the other five coming from thermal and more recently wind generation. As always, Hudson was keen to ensure the new crew would be welcomed and fit in with the positive ethos of the authority. McHugh quotes him from an article he wrote for the inaugural Snowy Authority magazine to inspire all involved, saying, quote, When the great architect Sir Christopher Wren was inspecting the building of St Paul's Cathedral, he asked three masons in turn what they were doing. The first said, I am dressing stone. The second said, I am dressing stone. But the third said, I am building a cathedral. Let us all, from the pick and shovel men to the top bosses, look at our work in the same way as that third man did, keeping before us all the time that we are building the greatest work ever contemplated in this country, and one which the nation needs. Unquote. Oh, that brings a tear to your eye, doesn't it? Such pride and enthusiasm. Up yours, Frank Packer. <laughs> Actually, it's nice to see, and many of those on the project felt the same way too. So, in the spring of 1951, the permanent works began at Gathiga, as soon as the 250 Norwegians arrived on their chartered flight. They had been 100 hours travelling before they arrived in Sydney, and they had 10 more to get from Sydney to Cooma. The last two on the new snowy roads would finally see them reach the camps at Gathiga, settling in there for their three-year tenure. More Norwegian workers followed, totalling a workforce of about 450, but McHugh notes that, due to the Norwegian government requirements for addressing their unemployment problem, most of the labourers were previously rural workers from the Arctic Circle. She ponders how much culture shock they must have experienced on arrival, our southern spring soon moving into long, hot summer days. Soon they would be celebrating Christmas in the heat. Quote, in Oslo it had been 20 degrees below freezing and we were quite comfortable. Now, four days later, in Sydney, it was 30 degrees above. And that's Celsius, so that's about 86 Fahrenheit. We were flat out and moaning, and it suddenly struck me. What on earth have I signed myself up for? Unquote. For the non-Norwegians coming in to work for the company, and used to Australian food, the Norwegian mess was thrilling. The porridge and cereal in the morning and the roast meal in the evening might have been ordinary, but the smorgasbords of interesting things laid out at lunch were certainly new. Some loved experiencing the unusual food. Dutch herring was virtually unheard of here. The salads were odd. The stews were full of unfamiliar flavours. But others just couldn't come at the strange fare. Pass the baked beans! <laughs> the Norwegians were also pretty adept at cross-country skiing introducing the lightweight skis with the loose heel, which allowed the wearer to slide them along in a shuffling walk. It was a new concept for the Australians, and it was one of the Norwegians who later championed it in Australia, developing cross-country skiing as a sport here. The Gathiga project progressed pretty well, and by June of 54, the turbines and generators were ready for installation, the construction works almost complete. A trial run was set up to test the turbines, under the gaze of the authority bigwigs. But the tunnel provided a bit more force than they'd anticipated, and the water there, under substantial pressure, overshot the bridge, <laughs> blowing away the stores building on the other side, which housed around 40,000 pounds worth of tools. Oh, whoops. <laughs> an expensive miscalculation. McHugh was told that in the aftermath, any time an expensive tool went missing, someone would say, oh, that must have gone with the shed, and no further suspicion could be raised. Stuff was pilfered from the project sites, and even from the camps, but there wasn't a lot of theft from personnel. 
Anyone caught breaking that code would be immediately sacked and charged. If they were lucky, their fellow workmen would not stand for that. The pressure in the tunnel was moderated after that test, one assumes, <laughs> and the transmission lines from Kuma, 76 kilometres away, were connected to the new generation facility in February of 1955, only a few weeks later than planned on paper. The first ever snowy hydroelectricity from the Gathiga Hydro Power Plant was live to the grid. A 1956 report noted, quote, the first power station is already making a substantial contribution towards our needs. The first revenue earned by the scheme from the supply of power to the Electricity Commission of New South Wales up to 30 June 1955 was already a little under one quarter million pounds. Unquote. They'd spent 55 million over the previous five and a half years, and generators were already contributing valuable power to the grid, just as Lemon had envisaged. It's hard for us to imagine just how important this achievement was. Gray noted that this early generation at Gathiga had a supply capacity of 60,000 kilowatts, an additional generator would come online as the water storage is filled, adding 50% more output again. Power was such an essential resource for the development of the new Australian manufacturing industries and the anticipated growth in domestic consumption. Frequent blackouts had been a problem for years. In fact, it was anticipated that the M1 and M2 Murray power stations, to the west of Gathiga, would alone generate more than 1 million kilowatts. This was more capacity than could be drawn from the whole of the New South Wales coal-fired grid in the mid-1950s. So it's beyond amazing. Just two out of the 16 or so expected power stations would more than double the capacity for the power-hungry post-war development. Robert Menzies officiated at the formal Gathiga opening on April 23rd, and to Lemon's delight, he was also invited. He was pleased to hear Menzies record that the project was, quote, a living memorial to the courage, enterprise and drive of Mr Chifley, unquote. It was a good thing to have experienced. But as future successful milestones were met, Chifley and Lemon and their roles faded into the past. And Menzies, who stayed in power until 1966 and continued the scheme's funding, claimed more and more of the kudos, as the project delivered more and more for the people in the southeast of Australia. For Hudson, though, it was onward and upward. Most of the crew of Selmans headed back to Norway, but about 40 Norwegians opted to stay on in Australia, many of those continuing on at the Snowy. The Americans had already won and begun the next big tender. In May of 1954, the senior staff of the U.S. construction conglomerate Kaiser Walsh Perini Raymond arrived in Cooma to work on the Yukonbin Tumut Tunnel and Associated Works. Their contract was going to be much tougher than the Norwegians, particularly because they were bound to source their materials from Australia or from other sterling countries where possible. The then Australian BHP Steelworks were supposed to be supplying most of their steel needs, but they'd failed to produce the goods. And, amazingly, despite the Americans being huge steel producers themselves, Kaiser had to bring it in from Britain. And Kaiser was constantly frustrated by the dawdling pace of supply, and indeed the labour in Australia. McHugh notes that they were very much the time-is-money people, but they did manage to source what they needed and to find those willing to work to their time frame. A French group under Etide d'Entreprise were contracted to build the associated constructions too, so there were plenty of nationalities represented in the company's building and supplying across the scheme, as well as the multinational workforce. 
The Americans from Kaiser Walsh, Perini, Raymond really set the pace on the snowy, though, driving their contractors and workers to meet and exceed their contract key performance indicators. And this time, quote, all the labour employed would be Australian or new Australian with the work organised and directed by the Americans, unquote. After the relatively relaxed attitude of the Norwegians, still bringing their contract in within two weeks of the agreed date, the Americans brought in a complete focus on hard work and introduced an element of competition as a way to motivate their workers, which really worked for them. Kaiser started the dam wall at Tumut Ponds in November 55, and it was ready to begin collecting storage water in September of 58, five months early. The T1 power station there would generate uh, 320,000 kilowatts itself, so it was a vast addition to the generating capacity of the growing complex, starting with two generators initially and adding two more the following year. Everyone was very impressed, but the Kaiser Group also excelled on construction of the Adaminabe, now Eucumbeen, dam. The Department of Public Works, who had overseen the design and construction plans, were supposed to be managing the construction too, but they had made very little progress on the ground, and in June of 56, Kaiser also took over the physical construction part of their project, working with the department. It would be fair to note, though, that plant and equipment availability in Australia was still a problem at that time. But really, the department was just not geared to moving with the speed and agility that the authorities' building schedule demanded. The department's dam wall was only 12 metres high, and they were already two years behind schedule. It was a pretty big ask, though. This would be the largest of the dams, on the largest water storage. It would be the biggest ever built in Australia at that time, and indeed it was one of the largest earth-rock-fill type dams anywhere in the world then, McHugh recording it as 116 metres high, 579 metres at its base. That's 380 foot high, 1900 feet wide. But the workers under the Department of the Public Works were proceeding too slowly for Hudson's project, not recognising the extra effort that was being required by snowy workers to get the tasks completed. So, two years behind and with costs spiralling, Hudson did intervene, letting that contract to Kaiser, and they did manage to cut the construction program from the expected four more years to around two. With hindsight, that first Norwegian crew at Gathiga and the department's labourers worked at what would later be considered a leisurely pace for the snowy. Later contractors, like the Americans, were tied more tightly to pricing and delivery dates, and any working conditions or disputes that impacted on these had to be solved by the tendering company to get their project back on the agreed track. As McHugh recorded, quote, the Norwegians even stopped for a sit-down hot meal. The American contractors that followed would find that if they got 30 minutes to grab a sandwich while the dust of the explosive settled, they were doing well, unquote. There was no doubt that Kaiser Walsh Perini Raymond Company had the drive and the experience to push the project ahead. Their new work practices began immediately they arrived on the snowy. Those already on the job would find their workday now was very different. No sitting round while the billy boiled. They were given a thermos in the morning and they were to sup on the move. Quote, the abolition of the traditional, almost sacred practice of smoke around the billy was quite a shock to a lot of the workmen and also to the unions, unquote. But they would need to get on board with a new work ethic or head back to town. Kaiser removed the divisions that had developed under the old-fashioned departmental attitudes too, abolishing the separate mess for the staff and the wages men. As Hudson had said, they were all in this together. 
Only the supervisors had a room to meet separately, to arrange their forward plans and sort out any difficulties. They also overhauled the plant and equipment there to ensure reliability, and they got stuck right in, bringing the project not just back on track but exceeding the expectations. Some felt that Kaiser were given too much credit on the Eukenbean Dam build, that all the hard work had been done in the early days by the department, Kaiser coming in late and taking the glory. But there was still a massive amount of quarrying, blasting and rock-moving work to do, and it had to be done at a pace to get it back on schedule. McHugh records that before the Kaiser supervisors came in, the truck drivers were doing about 29 round trips, carting fill each day. With the new regime, these times were nearly halved, the crews later nearly doubling their productivity to 59 round trips. So the workers were most definitely under pressure to work faster. For some, the pace demanded seemed too dangerous, and indeed there were several plant-related fatalities on that job under Kaiser's supervision. We'll talk about safety a little later. The Yanks, as they were colloquially known, were hard taskmasters, and anyone caught shirking was immediately let go, so they had the highest turnover on the scheme too. They had a reputation for being ruthless and tough, but at least the men knew what was expected when they signed on. Quote, the Yanks, all fairness to them, all they wanted was for you to do your day's work, unquote. Almost everyone worked long days, and if the job required additional hours, like working until the concrete pour was finished, you were expected to put those in too. You were, however, paid for the extra time, so it remained a lucrative, if demanding, worksite. One worker described the American worksite as, quote, a very slick system. The equipment was new and well-maintained. Everything was geared around production. No one was sitting around. Everyone had his job to do. It was just like a production line in a factory. But no one objected. You were there to work, unquote. The tunnel workers, miners really, were paid about three times the average Australian wage at the time. But they earned their money, their income actually dependent on the speed they moved the tunnel forward. They had a base rate, but they earned extra for each additional foot cleared. And the Kaiser contract had the incentive of a penalty clause, having to pay the authority £1,000 for every day that went over schedule. They could, however, increase their profit by coming in under time, gaining £500 per day saved, so the motivation was strong to get the most out of their workers. A delay in getting their equipment into the country meant they'd already commenced tunnelling a month later than expected, so it was all action when they got underway, and they soon got back on track. They encouraged competition between the shifts, see which group of fellows could outdo the others. Quote, They'd this big blackboard outside the tunnel, and they'd chalk up how much footage the day shift, the afternoon shift, and the graveyard shift got. The blackboard was like someone standing there with a whip behind us. We'd have to beat them. We'd have to beat them, unquote. They continually broke world records with the tunnelling, and each time they did, Kaiser would put on food and drink for the whole camp. The workers on the successful team won medals, recording their triumph. It was excavating the 14-mile Eukenbean Tumut Tunnel that the Snowy Project gained its first tunnelling world record. In May of 1955, they recorded an advance then of 402 feet in six days, though the workers were encouraged to continually best themselves and those international records. In 1956, a 14-man team on the Tumut Tunnel managed to clear 474 feet in one week and each man was presented with a medal by KWPR, and I've put an image of one of those medals on the Australian Histories podcast webpage if you're interested to have a look. 
A Water Power trade magazine article stated that in 1963, the Thies Brothers contractors on the Snowy Jihai Tunnel managed to set a record at a stunning 165 metres in a six-day week. I guess equipment hadn't moved on by then, but if that record's right, in metres, that's really impressive. Kaiser's methods, management style, reliable equipment and expertise served them well. McHugh suggests that the Australian Thies Brothers Company would recruit American senior staff so that they could emulate their success. The Toomer Dam project in May of 1958 was the first tendered project won by an Australian company, that was the Thies Brothers, to build an earth and rock-filled dam and the 14-kilometre tunnel between the dam and the Tumut Pond Reservoir. Operating successfully to the snowy high expectations, they went on to win other contracts over the next two decades, and other Australian companies like Humes and John Holland and the Australian General Electric Company were also brought in to contract or supply across the scheme. Many of these names are still giants, familiar to us across the country on big works. Actually, I must confess, prior to doing this research, I did not know that companies like these and John Holland were Australian. Whoops. Anyway, despite the focus on the immigrant workforce on the Snowy and the early international contractors, in fact, the majority of work over the scheme was done by Australian companies and contractors. McHugh noted one engineer from the Snowy Major Contract Division saying that Australian firms did more work than all the international contractors put together, so we can be pleased with that. And no doubt that put Australia and the Australian companies in good stead for the next few decades for other major projects. In the early proposal, all of the power plants were intended to be underground. You can see how having this infrastructure buried and somewhat hidden would be a more attractive idea if Defence and Security Service were the main factors being considered. As the project proceeded, the thinking changed, and only Tumut 1 and 2 power plants ended up being constructed fully underground. In these places, the topography and geography were such that it was quite viable to do so. Other sites would have proven more difficult, but as the data solidified and the construction plans were being drawn up, the number of individual power station buildings required had been reduced, and the fear of aerial attack was fading, so the plans were modified to allow for more above-ground construction, generally the cheaper option. McHugh notes that the Murray 1 power station was actually designed with its aesthetics in mind, and it does have a huge and rather beautiful glass facade, Quite the impressive bit of architecture, actually. And I'll put an image of Murray 1 on the website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. They took advantage of its beautiful surroundings to make a statement. And there is currently a Snowy Hydro Visitor Centre there, too. By the time the later constructions were underway, other new engineering advances had taken place. There was thinner steel available, giving much greater strength and at Tumut 3 they were able to install pipes twice the size of those installed in the early 1950s power station at Gathiga. They arranged a publicity stunt to show off the state-of-the-art steel pipes, driving a double-decker bus into one, creating a quirky and interesting story for the Australian papers. The authorities' PR people were really on the ball. <laughs> and there was plenty of engineering innovation occurring at the coalface and in the planning offices too. One small item I read in a 70th anniversary story in a trade magazine was that the engineering calculations processed from 1963 to 67 were done on the SNOWCOM computer, <laughs> Australia's first transistorized computer, and one of only 12 or so in the world. Woohoo! Those snowy eggheads were just so on point. 
The ACS Heritage Project website describes Snowcom's creation and the use on the snowy and notes, quote, its magnetic drum memory gave it the equivalent of eight kilobyte of RAM in today's terminology. <laughs> it remained in heavy use, running two shifts a day until 1967. It then returned to Sydney University as a student teaching machine and is now in Sydney's Powerhouse Museum, unquote. And McHugh records many of the other advances of international engineering significance in her book too. I don't know how many times clever people have explained to me how voltage and current works and how they relate and amps and volts and blah 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 blah. It refuses to compute for me, I'm afraid. But I will take the completely incomprehensible word of an electrical engineer in the know quoted by McHugh. See if any of this makes sense to you. And she explains first... Quote, At the time, the highest voltage in use in Australia was 132 kilovolt, while the European countries had 220 kilovolt. The authority decided to install transmission lines of 330 kilovolt, or 33,000 volts. And the engineer explained, The product of the voltage and the current in amps is roughly a measure of power. If you double the transmission voltage, you can halve the current for the same amount of power. Now, to carry the current, you need a certain size conductor, a transmission line in this case. If you halve the current, you can have a smaller conductor. And when you've got 400 miles, or 650 kilometres, of conductors, you save a lot of metal by going for the higher voltage, unquote. Okay, I think what he's saying is, thinner and cheaper wires carrying more power. Somehow this cunning plan saved a lot of money. I'm still not sure about what was so innovative. You'd think everyone would want to carry the higher voltage in that case. But anyway, it seems to be a cool idea for its time, and they seem to be taking credit for it. <laughs> anyway, apparently they developed high-speed turbines on the Snowy too. They were smaller, which made them cheaper to manufacture and easier to install. And so another great advance. They developed new and better methods for diamond drilling, and most significant of all was a new engineering technique known as rock bolting to secure potentially dicey, unstable rock in the tunnels. It was cheaper and safer than using the old method of creating a concrete lining. In yet more sexy engineering talk that I fail to understand, the gist is numerous rock bolts in a particular pattern allow them to reinforce one another elevating the strain of a single point, or something or other. But rest assured, it's a big deal in the civil engineering world. Sometimes these structures did the work of holding up the dodgy roof tunnels themselves, or, if concrete was required, it could be adhered to this secure anchorage. Quote, By the time we came to Tumut too, we had rock bolts providing permanent support for the roof. The Snowy was certainly a world leader at the time with that sort of work. We wrote papers on it got tremendous acclaim all round the world, unquote. <laughs> With all those dams, it was not surprising that they made many strides in developing state-of-the-art seismic monitoring equipment too. By 1970, these were being used across Australia and the world. So great job, fellas. So before we finish off today, we might turn our attention back to 1951 and the updated scheme plans. With a bigger dam now required at Adaminibi, Rather than having a new lake lapping at the edges of the existing town, the township would instead be completely submerged, and Jindabyne would suffer the same fate in time too. 
In relocating Adamenaby, there were three sites considered for the new township. One would see it move just a few hundred metres uphill from the soon-to-be-submerged old town, and this would have given them all a lake view, like New Jindabyne would have. But some folks worried that if the authority got their calculations wrong, or if they changed their minds again, they might find themselves closer to the water than they wanted. Another option was a few kilometres away, sited above the beautiful Murrumbidgee River. But after some consideration, the Shire chose the third option, about eight miles from the old town on the plains. And this seemed attractive to the Shire councillors, who were largely managing the decision because of its proximity to the existing major highway. I can see that good transport options might have been attractive, with an eye perhaps to commerce, but without a pretty amenity it would have been unlikely to bring in tourists, despite the comfortable roads, and they had lost a lot of income related to the now-diminished pastoral activities. Tourism would be a help, and income would need to be developed elsewhere if they were to thrive. Personally, I feel that views and a visually pleasant local environment is a very valuable thing, particularly as they were at liberty to choose from scratch. But, as McHugh put it, quote, instead of claiming the prime scenic position on top of the hill, looking down on the new lake, the bright modern buildings of new Adaminaby sit stranded against the dreary backdrop of denuded plains, unquote, with cars all driving straight past it on that flashy highway. I can't wait for travel to open up again. I'm so looking forward to exploring these places sometime in the future. I have visited a couple of them in the distant past, but only a fragment of Jindabyne remains in my memory, and not a hint of Adaminaby, I'm afraid. <laughs> McHugh gathered some wonderful recollections from the old townsfolk, and I'll recount a few here, in moving the previously straggling and roomy townships into tight suburban-style small-block grids, not everyone appreciated their new quarter-acre proximity. I mean, where was the space to keep the yard cow now? But at least the new towns were constructed with all mod cons of the day. Most services were within close walking distance, and they would build new sporting and other community facilities and services for the townsfolk. Town electricity and town water were certainly convenient, and to many, new. McHugh recounts a story that did the rounds about a woman who was constantly complaining about her toilet leaking. When they sent someone out to find exactly what her problem was, it turned out that her worry was actually the water, which was constantly collecting in the bottom of her new toilet pan. <laughs> Never having seen a flush toilet before, connected to running town water and sewerage pipes, she was unaware that the water there was a necessary part of the arrangement. <laughs> but there was one very pleasant outcome in Adaminaby, with the new township sited in a dip in the plains. They found that being 120 metres lower in altitude meant that they had less chill, one relocated resident said, quote, We used to get 11 inches of snow in the old town, but it's just a bad frost here. It's three overcoats warmer. <laughs> Jindabyne, 85 kilometres or about 53 miles away from Adaminaby, fared better in the relocation stakes, and I would hazard that its placement and beautiful surroundings played a large part in its rejuvenation. Its role as a gateway to the new snowfields gave it a winter future. Though McHugh suggests old Jindabyne had plenty of charm to start with, and it was already an attraction for visitors with the beautiful river and surrounding mountains. The new dam would add more to the year-round water recreational opportunities that they could offer. 
New Gendervine didn't really start construction until 1961, and they had taken a lesson from the decision made at Adaminibi, opting to stay nearby, rebuilding on what would be the edge of the new expanded lake. Only a handful of the old homes were relocated, all the others opting to take advantage of the cheap loans and have new, modern homes built, the township and services all completed for the official opening in 1964. With a beautiful new lake, it grew and developed as a tourist centre and a gateway and service town for the snowfields. The ski industry itself developed there as a direct result of the opening up of the area by the snowy scheme. Czechoslovakian hydrographer Tony Sponner, being a former Olympic skier, was recruited largely for his ability to get around easily on the snow. As he worked across the Kosciuszko expanse, he noted the areas with potential for ski field development. Later, he chose an area that could facilitate long, steep runs, which later became Threadbow, probably Australia's premier skiing destination, and he began arranging a lease and finding investors who could see the potential in his development idea. In 1956, he employed some new refugees from the Bonagilla Migrant Centre, and using the old Norwegian workers' huts as a base, he had them start on clearing the ski runs and chairlift tracks on the slopes bringing the first ever chairlift into the country, finally got him his consortium investors. But then, of course, he no longer had sole control over this pet project, and the development did not continue exactly as he'd envisaged. In 1958, when Threadbow opened, Sponar left the syndicate, but he continued to live and ski in the area, no doubt watching as his seed idea grew into the massive resort it is today. Threadbow was the first such ski field lease permitted, and the authority went on to grant another at Perisher, where another ex-snowy worker, Kor Grunsund, promoted the cross-country version of skiing. But the main gem, to my mind, to come from the snowy was the creation of the 1967 Kosciuszko National Park, covering 6,900 square kilometres and encompassing much of the authority's works. We'll talk a little more about that in the final episode, perhaps. But even at the time, there was an emotional cost to the project for those up close. There was a pride, Australia-wide, in the Snowy Project, and there was a great desire to gain from the electricity and water outputs, but those who lived there had much more personal responses, along with the cheery and positive. Little farms and giant outback stations, they all are mechanised today. For milk and cows and shear and sheep to do it fast and do it cheap Electrically is the modern way Put a light in every country window High speed pumps where now the windmills stand Get in and lay the cable so that one day we'll be able To have electricity all over this wide land It was the sad lament of loss in it's time to say goodbye to Jindabyne It's been my home these 50 years of time Now the mountains in their winter snow And the snowy river down below Will whisper in farewell to Jindabyne And now farewell, old home of mine They're going to flood the valley and the town of Jindabyne. For some, moving from their old land holdings or relocating from their existing homes into newly built versions may have been exciting, but many felt bereft at leaving memories and familiar surroundings behind. 
Financial compensation couldn't account for all those losses. McHugh recounted one very moving story. One woman appeared devastated when the relocation time arrived and the removalist advised her that the concrete floor in her laundry could not be brought along with her. The workmen were puzzled as to why she was so distressed over a laundry floor of all things. But she told them about coming to the block with her now deceased husband as newlywed so long ago and building a life there together from the ground up. When she cut off her long hair a couple of weeks after arrival, her husband had placed her tresses there into the concrete they were laying for the laundry floor. It was such a poignant story, the men were deeply touched, and they headed off to find the appropriate heavy machinery required so they could lift the concrete slab and move it to her new home. You've got to love that kindness. The Adam Inneby buildings suitable for relocation on a low loader were moved between 1956 and 58, 101 buildings in total, and the authority made the most of the PR potential when it could. McHugh recalls the home of one family being photographed en route, the family aboard inside, while Mrs Potter baked scones in her mobile kitchen. <laughs> By late 1959, old Adam was underwater. Of course, it wasn't just the houses that needed moving. McHugh recorded in Jindabyne there were 94 graves to relocate from the old town to the new. This thought hadn't occurred to me. And of course a specialist team had to be brought in from Sydney to carefully undertake this sensitive task. And again it generated an excellent story that McHugh recorded years later in gathering her oral histories. The remains relocation crew understood the gravity of the task and took all care to ensure that the job was done well, with each grave site being checked to ensure that all remains were accounted for. And checking to ensure that nothing had been missed, they noted that there were arm bones missing from this grave. The men dug further, searching to see how they had missed that, but to no avail. They were puzzled, and later, in the local pub, as they were pondering what could have gone wrong, an elderly resident came to their aid. Quote, the grave belonged to one William Wingy Wallace, whose arm had been lost in a crushing mill accident in Sydney over 100 years before. No bloody wonder I couldn't find it. I found out in the finished he didn't have one. Unquote. <laughs> There were many men working on the Snowy who were single, or who had left their families behind while they worked, and so they were usually housed in barracks-style villages, sometimes fairly close to the work sites or on the edge of the townships. But there were a good number of families housed in townships across the scheme construction areas too. The prefab staff houses were built in Cooma and moved to the current project staff towns intended to be used during the building duration and then moved on. They were pretty comfortable for the families, but the environment itself was often as much a shock for the Australian women as it was for the incoming migrant. But exciting too. Some had never been in such rugged country before, so far from civilization. Hardly anyone had experienced snow before. The first fall would have been fun, but a full winter might have taken the gloss off. Sometimes they were snowed in for a couple of weeks at a time, unable to even get to the local store. McHugh reported that they soon learned how to stock the house with essentials to see them through. They could be totally isolated if the roads into town closed, and in a beautiful irony for the hydroelectric builders, they had to keep plenty of candles and lamps on hand, as the snow and ice on the local power lines often put them out of service. Put a light in every country window indeed, except those closest to the new generators apparently. It was devastatingly cold in winter, with water freezing in the pipes, and summer brought bushfire danger. The isolation from the familiar could be draining for some, it was often a long and difficult drive to the nearest large town, like Cooma, 
and it could be challenging and exhausting just to keep up appearances. One lady set out at 10am from Happy Jack's for the long haul to a hairdressing appointment at Cooma, around 55 kilometres or 35 miles away. But getting back home proved to be an ordeal when the weather closed in. She carried the required snow chains in her car, but soon they didn't cut it. She abandoned her car and was transferred to a four-wheel drive Land Rover, but even that failed to get through. She was finally chauffeured home in a bulldozer. <laughs> but she arrived with her new do, so that was a win. Snowy people were hardy people, and glamorous too, it seems. Fortunately, though, aside from a bit of class snobbery in the larger authority townships, there was generally a good camaraderie amongst the women in the communities, and the kids roamed freely in what was quite an interesting neighbourhood for them. Of course, it was the actual baby boom going on right then too, and the snowy people were doing their bit for queen and country. <laughs> McHugh records the doctor stationed at Happy Jacks claiming that they had the highest birth rate for a town their size in Australia. In a single year, nearly half of all the families there had a baby. As McHugh recorded the oral histories, those who were kids at the time often recalled fond memories of an idyllic life, which is so good to hear. One bloke had strong memories of the fireworks the French would put on for Bastille Day when he was a boy. Not surprising, really, as apparently they spiced up their show with Jalignite. <laughs> he also recalled being amazed that there were actual barrels of wine in the cellars of the French families. Wine was a pretty new experience for the Australians then. Certainly there was no Aussie tradition, as there might have been in an Italian family, for example, of drinking wine with one's meal. Alcohol was more a recreational pursuit, and it was beer or sherry more likely. The same man recalled his Italian neighbours creating a fancy nativity scene at Christmas, another new and exotic European tradition to be delighted by, and he recalled the German houses full of unusual ornaments and decorations. <laughs> Maybe they had one of those delightful musical cuckoo clocks. He found it all very interesting anyway. It would all have been fun and new for the children, exploring all the different cultural foods and artefacts without any preconceived prejudices. But for the Australian housewives, it would have been a steeper learning curve. There was one comment about knocking on a neighbour's door. If you're a bit too enthusiastic, you might cause offence. One agitated Italian woman berated her neighbour, saying, Only the fastisti knocked that way. <laughs> knocking like the fascists. Well, I laugh, but their wartime experiences may well have brought post-traumatic stress responses with them. And for many fortunate Australians, they would have had little idea of the traumas that some of the Europeans might have endured. One engineer recorded a few of his thoughts and recollections in an article for The Quadrant in 2006. McGee had been an army engineer at Maralinga in South Australia, where they were undertaking the atomic bomb testing. He was pleased in 1957 to take up work on the snowy bringing his growing family with him. He recalled one evening in 1957 being in their little company house, playing Scrabble with a fellow engineer, a Russian. During the evening they all made their way outside onto the snow-covered ground to scour the clear sky above, and sure enough they all saw the bright new satellite Sputnik streaking across the sky. These were amazing and heady times for all this new and developing technology. It's stuff we take completely for granted now. But how exciting it must have been experiencing all those new innovations at that time. I'm sure they couldn't have imagined where we would end up with those satellites. So, as always, there's so much more to say about the experiences of everyday life for the workers and for the families, but we'll need to leave it here for today. Remember to head to the website at 
www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and see the reference list for this episode and some of the interesting images that I mentioned. Now, I've put the information about the music snippets I've used in this episode in the reference list too, but I thought it worth mentioning that two of the excerpts this month were produced by The Settlers, a group formed by Irishman Ulick O'Boyle and some co-workers to perform the songs that he wrote about their experiences working on the snowy. The songs were released again on CD in 2014, in part to ensure that these important elements of the cultural history of the project were preserved. I have also put the link to the Settlers webpage where you can purchase the CD and songbook and find out a little bit more about Ulick, the band, and the songs inspired by the Snowy in that reference list too. Ulick contributed a lot of information to Siobhan McHugh's oral history project too, which was wonderful. <laughs> he certainly had some interesting insights. I also want to remind you that this podcast is an independent production undertaken by myself and supported only by listener donations. If you have been enjoying the show, like a book or a movie, please consider making a donation or signing up to the Patreon page to help cover the hosting and research costs. Now, my podcast recommendation this month is David Crowther's History of England. I listen to a number of podcasts covering British history, and this one is a delight. Just so lovely to listen to and presented with real warmth and enthusiasm. From the exit of the Romans onwards, David helps us really imagine the lives and times under discussion. There's a members feed too, but there's plenty of episodes available in the free feed to keep you busy for months. Hello everyone, and sorry to keep you from the peerless Australian Histories podcast, but Jenny got in touch and asked if I would like to tell you about my very own podcast. So I thought, silly not to. So, I am David Crowther, the host of the History of England podcast, a chronological telling of England's varied often bloody, occasionally uplifting and sometimes mildly amusing history. I try to make sure the history is reliably checked and that we talk about ordinary folks as well as the great and the good. You can find it on iTunes or any good podcatcher near you or on the line at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. While I'm here, could I just also thank the Australian nation for the expression not worth the rough end of a pineapple, which has kept me chuckling for, oh, 30 years or more, and the one about the raw prawn. Also, just to remind you that it's our turn to have the ashes next. My thanks to Jenny, and check out the History of England if you have a mind. As always, I'll put the link on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. My email and other contact details are available on that webpage too if you'd like to get in touch. Next time, we'll continue the snowy story by looking more closely at the workers' arrangements. At the peak of construction, in 1959-60, there were 7,300 people employed across the project. So that's a lot of people to keep fed and watered and entertained. I also want to look at the fairly recent Health and Safety report that looked back on the scheme too. So there's still plenty to reflect on. Thanks for listening this month. I hope you'll join me again next time. Have a safe and happy few weeks, and I'll continue the snowy story soon. Cheers.